Don't forget you can check out the video version of this on our YouTube channel, and you can also subscribe to this podcast. Ideas that our planet is at least a little bit hollow go all the way back to antiquity. Certain caves in Greece, Ireland, Italy, India, and other lands were thought to lead to the underworld where some kind of god and or devil and or demons lived. This idea has persisted, however, becoming its very own branch of pseudoscience. Adherents of this notion cannot help but think that, well, if the Earth really is hollow, surely the powers that be know about it, and yet no information is forthcoming to the public. Therefore, conspiracy! And we're off to the races in this episode. What lies beneath the hollow Earth? This is a biggin'. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Hollow Earth Point Zero. Many say the source for the idea that the Earth is hollow comes from no less a luminary than Sir Edmund Halley of the Comet fame, the second ever astronomer royale assuming the post in 1720 and discoverer of many things celestial. After an already pretty distinguished career at the age of 42, 42 note Douglas Adams fans, he was given access to the HMS Paramore, a 52-foot, six-gun, narrow-stern sailing ship to aid him in his investigations into variations in compass readings in the Southern Hemisphere. In November 1698, the ship set out on what goes down in history as the very first scientific voyage ever by an English ship. Though he's mainly known as an astronomer, his curiosity ranged far and wide and included our own world as well. Previous to this voyage, he pretty much invented the magnetic compass with a device that floated in a liquid to reduce the to-and-fro motion of the magnetized needle. In 1692, six years before taking over the Paramore, Halley proposed the notion that the crust of the Earth might be about 500 miles thick, 800 kilometers, and then inside might be two inner shells, which in turn surrounded some sort of a core. These two shells rotated against each other, And since each one had its own magnetic pole, this might be the cause of the various readings he got from his compasses. He further figured the interior must have some kind of gaseous atmosphere, possibly one that glowed, and when that glowing gas escaped from the poles, that accounted for the auroras seen high in the atmosphere. And if there's an atmosphere, why, there might even be people living in the hollow earth. This was all something he hoped to get more data on with the voyage of the Paramour. Of course, he wasn't the first person to come up with this idea of a hollow earth. Dante's Inferno, written back in 1320, has hell filling up the whole inside of the earth in nine concentric circles, with Satan at its very center. 
In Shakespeare's 1595 play A Midsummer Night's Dream, Hermia speculates that the earth might be hollow. In 1665, a German Jesuit scholar named Athanasius Kirche wrote a whole book about geography called Mundus Subterraneus, or the underground world, in which he mused there might be water flowing under the surface of the earth, quote, through an intricate system of channels that connected the poles to one another. Halley went on his voyage, but found no evidence that the earth was hollow. But the idea persisted. In 1781, a French military officer named Leclerc Milfort, also known as Lewis, managed to command a whole group of Creek American Indian warriors to fight on the British side against the upstart American colonies. That war, of course, would end in 1783 in September with the colonies victorious. While in the Creek lands east of the Mississippi, around modern-day Alabama, he heard tell their ancient story of how humans had first come to the surface of the earth out of an interior world through huge caves where the Red River hooks up with the Mississippi in Louisiana. He further claimed that he had traveled to these caves and saw that they were big enough to house 20,000 families in his estimation. Hardly proof the earth is hollow, but the Creek Indian tale was added to the proof pile by hollow earthers. Some hollow earth people also claim that Swiss polymath scientist Leonard Euler also thought the earth was hollow and contained a mini sun which gave light and warmth to beings living there. This, however, has been proven false, despite true believers coming up with all kinds of specifics like, oh, he thought that inside sun had to be a thousand kilometers across and that he had proven mathematically that it is necessary for the earth to be hollow. None of this is true. What he actually did was a thought experiment in which he said that if one were to somehow drill straight through the earth, any object at the center would lose its gravity since The source of the gravity must be in the very center of the planet. And then if one were to continue past the midpoint to the other side, it would seem as if you were going up rather than down. The Simulation. But the hollow earth thing really kicks off with an American army captain, one John Cleves Sims Jr., who published a document called Circular Number 1 on April 10, 1818, in which he outlines his big theory. The earth is made of five concentric shells, and we live on the outside of the outermost one. He figured the earth's crust to be about a thousand miles thick, 1,600 kilometers, and he said there was a 4,000-mile-wide hole in the Arctic and a 6,000-mile-wide hole in the Antarctic. These two holes allowed access into the interior world and would later be known by theorists as Sims holes. He also said the Earth must be flattened at the poles, and because of the centrifugal force of the Earth spinning, if you were walking from the surface into one of these holes, you would transition to the interior world without even noticing. Once down there, you'd have plenty of light because sunlight came in through the holes and then reflected off of each of the shell's surfaces, bouncing around, lighting everything up, and it would be nice and warm, probably filled with plants and animals and maybe also people. He thought that all planets and moons were also laid out in a similar fashion. Over time, he altered his ideas, eventually settling on just one interior sphere, but he spent the rest of his life promoting this notion through a series of lectures. He paid out of his own pocket to have circular number one sent to the leaders of most major countries in the world. For the record, he was ignored by them. But plenty of other people were ready to pony up some cash to hear him speak while others became essentially his acolytes. There is a statue to him and his ideas in the town of Hamilton, Ohio. One thing he kept pushing for was an expedition to the Arctic to find the Northern Hole. Or to the Antarctic. It didn't really matter. Just Just find find the hole! 
In the 1800s, newspaper guy Jeremiah Reynolds also started lecturing about a hollow earth, and he also pushed hard for an expedition to the South Pole. It's partly through his efforts that the great U.S. exploring expedition of 1838 to 1842 was formed, though Reynolds himself didn't actually get a chance to participate. Reynolds wrote extensively on this and other topics, mainly his own adventures, and it's thought that Edgar Allan Poe drew heavily on some of Reynolds' writings for his own work, The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym, Poe's only full-length novel about a young man's adventures on the high seas. Though Poe would later dismiss it as, quote, a silly book, it would greatly influence Jules Verne and Herman Melville, among others. Interestingly, another of Reynolds' scribblings was an account of Mocha Dick, a legendary pale sperm whale that greatly irritated Chilean fishermen for 30 years before finally being killed. This obviously would morph into Melville's Moby Dick. Others soon followed in Sims' footsteps. Follower James McBride wrote the book Sims' Theory of Concentric Spheres in 1826. Reynolds himself wrote a pamphlet called Remarks of Sims' Theory in 1827. Scottish physicist and mathematician John Leslie included ideas about a hollow earth in his 1829 Elements of Natural Philosophy. Jules Verne wrote the proto-science fiction novel Journey to the Center of the Earth in 1864. A Captain W.F. Lyons wrote The Hollow Globe in 1868, and in 1871, Edward Bueller Lytton wrote his novel The Coming Race about the Vril, an advanced civilization who live in the hollow earth and control a powerful substance known as the Vril. For more on that, listen to a previous episode, A View to a Vril. Even America's Sims, Captain John's son, wrote The Sims Theory of Concentric Spheres in 1878. Same title, different author, different year. He probably wrote this because he was annoyed that Lyons, who wrote his book in 68, had not credited his father at all, and Americus wanted people to know that it was his father's idea. Which, of course, if it had turned out to be true, would have been pretty important. In 1885, William Fairfield Warren, first president of Boston University, wrote a book titled Paradise Found, The Cradle of the Human Race at the North Pole in which he theorized that the location of places in many ancient tales, Atlantis, the Garden of Eden, Avalon, the island of King Arthur, Mount Meru, the center of the physical universe for Hindus, Jains, and some Buddhists, and the northern land of Hyperborea, first written about by Herodotus in 450 BCE, were actually all at the North Pole. He also ties the pole to the Pillars of Atlas, the Norse cosmic tree Yggdrasil, the Anglo-Saxon sacred pillar Irmansul, and so on. Warren's work would form a major part of Indian historian Bal Gandahar Tilak's 1903 book, The Arctic Home of the Vedas, in which he argues that the Veda people, the progenitors of the peoples of the subcontinent, had their original homeland at the North Pole. In 1895, a Cincinnati, Ohio pharmacologist wrote Edidorpa, or The End of the Earth, The Strange History of a Mysterious Being and an Account of a Remarkable Journey, a novel structured as a manuscript that was dictated to one Llewellyn Drury by a being who was called I Am the Man, and also included this jury's adventures when he went into a cave in Kentucky and found himself inside the hollow earth where he learned all sorts of lost secrets like alchemy and how to eventually transform yourself into a being of pure spirit and light. The name of the land he finds is the title of the book, Edadorpa, which is Aphrodite spelled backwards. Of course, with the pole being essentially unreachable with the technology of the time, people could say pretty much anything they wanted about it. It's not like it would be easy to just go up there and check to see if there was a huge multidimensional tree or the ruins of Atlantis or a 4,000 mile wide hole up there. 
fiction, fiction and, and fact. fact. All these scholarly works, if we may call them that, continued to stimulate people's imaginations. But really, it was the novels that probably did more than anything else to popularize the idea of a hollow earth, at least outside the academic world. In addition to Jules Verne's aforementioned novel, in 1900, a book was published called Nequa, or The Problem of the Ages, written by a Jack Adams, who is also the protagonist. It's written in the form of a journal, and it comes out that Jack is actually a woman named Cassie who's been dressing as a man for years in order to be able to be an explorer and who manages to enter the hollow earth on an Arctic voyage and finds a proto-socialist collectivist society called the Arturians, where men and women have equal say in their affairs. This book is considered one of the earliest instances of feminist science fiction, and many people think that Jack Adams, the author, actually was a female writer using Jack Adams as a pen name. Oh, there were plenty more. Often, Atlantis was mentioned, the subterranean land was the source of Bigfoot, dinosaurs still lived down there, and so on and so on it went. In 1913, Marshall Gardner laid out in great detail how a hollow earth would actually work scientifically, at least according to his notions. Gardner actually built a working model of the hollow earth with an interior sun and had it patented. A popular literary device of the time was to write a novel in the form of a journal or a series of found documents, and so it is sometimes difficult to tell which of these books about the hollow earth were intended as fiction, masquerading as fact, and which of them were in fact intended to be taken seriously. This all sounds awfully familiar to modern people. But the two novels with their amazing imagery and rich detail helped cement the notion in people's minds. In 1914, Edgar Rice Burroughs, a man whose fertile imaginative works still entice and influence today, after all he created John Carter of Mars, Tarzan, the Pirates of Venus series, The Land That Time Forgot, The Lost Continent, and many more, he wrote a series of hollow earth adventure novels, starting with At the Earth's Core, which describes the land of Pelucadar. He would go on to write a total of seven of these novels between 1914 and 1963, including a crossover work, Tarzan at the Earth's Core, in 1929. This was the fourth book in his Hollow Earth series, but the 13th in the Tarzan series. In it, Tarzan flies into the Hollow Earth in a specially constructed airship, entering through a giant hole at the North Pole. In these works, the Earth is indeed hollow, but Palukadar is actually on the inside surface of the crust. The world he creates is incredibly detailed, including complicated explanations of what it would be like to stand there. There's no horizon, for example. It's a concave instead of a convex surface. And he details dozens of animals, some of which, like goats, also live on the surface, but many are unique to that environment, and 18 separate human or human-like races. Much of his descriptive reasoning would end up influencing such science fiction classics as Arthur C. Clarke's Rendezvous with Rama. Then there's the Kingdom of Argartha. This is an old legend that had been around for centuries in Asia, passed down in varying degrees of detail in oral traditions. It came to Europe but was little known. A French occultist, Alexandre Saint-Yves d'Alvedre, kept coming across tales of this place and collected them all together and wrote it up. After his death, this compilation account was published inspiring others, though I'm sure he threw in a healthy dose of invention here and there. The kingdom of Agartha had been described by Buddhists and Tibetans as a huge underground world where godlike beings lived. 
In the late 19th century, Madame Blavatsky and the Theosophists mixed up stories of Agartha with others about Shambhala, which is actually a different place. It's a city where, sometime in the future, the tenth and final avatar of Vishnu will be born, who will bring about the Satya Yuga, or the New Age. So, attention for many who were thinking about the hollow earth shifted away from the poles and towards Tibet and the Himalayas. This idea was so interesting that many artists have used it for inspiration. For example, the 1975 double album by Miles Davis titled Agartha, the cover of which was designed by Japanese artist Tadanori Yuku, who used images from Raymond Bernard's 1964 book, The Hollow Earth. More about him coming up. But first we need to take a pit stop at Zermatism. This was a pseudoscientific theory concocted by Polish visual artist Stanislav Szukowski. Working within a style that became known as bent classicism, he was called Poland's greatest living artist in the 1920s. But in addition to art, he did a lot of digging around in old books and speculating, which he mistook for research. You know, how a lot of people use YouTube today as research. Sometime around 1940, he believed he had uncovered a proto-language, which he called Protong in English. For the next 40 years, he would work on a 42-volume work over 25,000 pages long and containing more than 14,000 drawings, building a complicated mythology that he seemed to think, at least, was 100% totally true. In this massive work, he thought that there had been a world flood, just like in the Bible and many, many, many other mythological traditions, and all of humanity had been wiped out except for a small contingent who survived on Easter Island. It is here that they spoke this Protong language, and it is from here that they spread out to repopulate the rest of the world. Ah, but for tens of thousands of years before that flood, humanity had been a slave race subjected to the Yetisini, or sons of the Yeti. You see, way back in antiquity, humans and Yeti had evolved in different parts of the globe independently, but then when they came in contact, the physically stronger Yeti killed many of the human males and raped many of the human females. This resulted in a batch of mixed-race babies who grew powerful, having the best of both species, and turned the weaker, pure Homo sapiens into slaves. Some of this hidden history can be seen in mythological characters like the god Pan, who is usually depicted as half-man, half-goat, but who is actually half-man, half-yeti. And just like the flood didn't kill all the humans, it didn't kill all the sons of Yeti either. Those brutes withdrew to inside the earth where they still live and wage a secret war with humanity using sophisticated technology and flying saucers. It's a weird and incredibly richly detailed theory which, though utterly baseless, has its fans. Zermatism has been referenced in the Church of the Subgenius. Artist Ernest Fuchs, founder of the Vienna School of Fantastic Realism, used imagery from the theory in much of his work, as has Swiss artist H.E. Giger, and even Rick Griffin, who designed many of the psychedelic posters advertising bands like the Grateful Dead in the 60s and 70s. The band Tool also cites Shukalski as a major influence. In 2018, Netflix came out with a documentary by Irek Dobrovolsky, narrated by Leonardo DiCaprio, who also co-produced, called Struggle, The Life and Lost Art of Shukalski. Dero, Dero, the Shaver Mystery. From 1945 to 48, 
Pioneering science fiction magazine Amazing Stories published a popular series of tales by Richard Sharp Shaver, written as if they were factual accounts, about how the author had come across a secret that a series of tunnels runs all through the subterranean world inhabited by the Darrow, a sadistic, degenerate, former slave race of the much more sophisticated Lumerians who originated underground in our prehistory. The name Darrow means detrimental robots. The Darrow have a bunch of complicated machines built by their predecessors, but they've degenerated so far and are so malevolent, the only use they can think for this technology is to torment the people who live on the surface. As an example, they will often project voices as surface dwellers who will freak out because there's no obvious source for the voice. This, of course, sounds very much like paranoid schizophrenia. These evil Darrows also frequently kidnap women to rape and people of both sexes to eat. They sound very much like the Morlocks in H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. Now, before these stories got published, Shaver had already been in contact with the magazine, saying that he'd found a lost language called Mantong, from which all modern languages sprang. Note the similarity to Shukalski's Protong. This Mantong could be used to decode the hidden meanings inside all the words we use today, in a way similar to Jewish gematria, in which each letter has a numerical value, and so words that add up to the same number are really aspects of a larger unifying idea. In Mantong, each letter used to spell out modern words has a hidden meaning. For example, if we take the letters of the word story, S-T-O-R-Y, you get S, which means sun, the sun emits a negative force, T, which means beneficial force, O, which means orifice, but also source, R, which means horror, which uh, indicates lots of negative forces present, and then Y, which is the question word why. That's vague enough to be able to be interpreted as something along the lines of, a story is a combination of negative and positive energy told through an orifice, a mouth, which is where the story comes from, which then elicits an impulse from the listener to learn more. Many stories originated by observing natural phenomenon like the sun and wondering about them. You can spend hours and hours and hours playing with the Mantong decoding guide, which you can find a link to in the episode notes. Fortunately, Mantong used the same 26 letters that English does. See, the thing is, Shaver may have been a fiction writer playing a part, or he may actually have believed all this and been, you know, crazy. Amazing Stories editor Ray Palmer didn't really care. Packaging all these fantastical tales as the Shaver Mystery, publishing them and letting the chips fall where they may. Some people wrote into Amazing Stories that the whole thing should be called the Shaver Hoax. Other people supported it. Palmer published both kinds of letters because the controversy led to more sales. Some thought Palmer was exploiting a clearly mentally ill man, maybe rewriting some of his rantings into a more cohesive narrative. And in his private life, Palmer never made it clear as to whether or not he believed Shaver's claims or not. He did, however, commission some other writers to continue coming up with stories based in the universe that Shaver was talking about. In the 1950s, a young Harlan Ellison verbally attacked Palmer on the subject. Ellison famously loved arguing with people, getting him to admit that the whole shaver thing was, quote, a publicity grabber. Ha ha, said Ellison. That phrase admits it's a lie, and he spread the story around that Palmer admitted it was all hooey. 
Palmer responded by saying no, his comment was not an admission of anything. It merely acknowledged that the Shaver mystery was great for sales. It's estimated that circulation of Amazing Stories went up by 50,000 during this whole affair. But a lot of people just didn't take to it. Some fans and even writers boycotted Amazing Stories for pursuing such questionable judgment. And in 1948, there is even threat of pressuring the U.S. Post Office to stop delivering the magazine. So Palmer, after 22 of the Shaver stories, turned off the tap. He would later say that he'd been forced to do this because of sinister forces that had threatened him and the magazine. For example, at one point he came in and his typewriter had been vandalized. And another time, his home suddenly had a massive flea infestation, which Shaver told him all of this was obviously the work of the evil underground Darrows. Palmer was forced to resign from the magazine over the whole thing, but... He landed on his feet. He'd already started a company called Clark Publications and in 1948 started publishing Fate magazine. And then in 1957, Flying Saucers magazine, inspired by all the saucer attention after the Kenneth Arnold sightings in 1947. And in 1952, Palmer co-authored a book with Arnold on the subject of UFOs. He also started a magazine called The Hidden World, in which he continued to publish more of Shaver's ramblings. In 1975, just two years before his death, Palmer published a book called The Secret World, which took all of Shaver's work and combined it all into one meta-mystery-slash-conspiracy book. Another one of Mr. Shaver's discoveries, if we can call it that, was that certain rocks you find are actually what he called rock books, encoded by ancient beings, Atlanteans, of course, with information that could be read if you learned the secret as to how. He even started a book-lending library through the mail called the Atlantean Library. The Shaver story would inspire numerous other writers and artists over the years. The grand master of role-playing games, Dungeons & Dragons, which started in 1974, has an underground race of evil dwarves called the Darrow, with two R's. Philip K. Dick's Confession of a Crap Artist has imagery and more from Shaver's writings. In 1976, Harlan Ellison himself referred to the whole thing in one section of his collection of 26 very, very, very short stories called A to Z in the Chocolate Alphabet, in that the entry for E is elevator people, who are people who go deep into the earth on special elevators and are tortured by subterranean denizens. In 1995, the computer game Shivers, set in a haunted museum, contains a sculpture of a Darrow. And the 2004 Japanese horror film Merabito, which means unique one, makes Shaver's stuff and the Darrow an important part of the story. In 2009, Pasadena City College held an exhibition called Mantong and Brotong, which mixes together the works of both Shaver and the Polish artist Szukowski. Maybe all this was an exercise in postmodern genre blurring, sort of a printed version of the Blair Witch Project. Or yes, maybe Palmer was exploiting a man who frankly needed professional help, which is not cool. The real problem, though, of course, was public reaction. While there were boycotts and professional people who didn't like it, thousands, yes, thousands of people wrote into amazing stories to claim that they, too, had heard the mysterious voices of the Darrow and were being targeted by these monsters. A former Air Force captain wrote in telling the magazine to please stop publishing the stories because it's all true and the Darrows are getting angry about it. He then went on to recount a tale of how he and a fellow military guy got trapped in a cave by the Darrows and had to fight their way out with machine guns and he received injuries along the way. 
One woman wrote that she'd gone into a secret elevator in an apartment building in Paris and accidentally stumbled across the realm of the Darrows, who kept her captive for months, raping her and torturing her. In many, many cities, groups gathered called the Shaver Mystery Clubs, where people who had had horrible experiences at the hands of the Darrows could discuss and hopefully talk through their horrible experiences. Therapy sessions, if you will. There were so many of these Shaver Mystery Clubs that in the May 21st, 1951 issue of Life magazine, they are mentioned in an article called Through the Interstellar Looking Glass, all about how science fiction was, quote, the fastest growing folklore of the machine age. The Shaver bit starts on page 134. You can find a link in the episode notes. Now, these support groups sound an awful lot like the ones that cropped up in the 80s to help people deal with the trauma of being medically and sexually assaulted by aliens during abductions, made famous by Whitley Strieber in his book Communion. So maybe there's some underlying psychological thing happening here that just gets expressed in different ways at different times. However, the hollow earth and UFOs would soon become inextricably linked. Not Not visitors, visitors. roommates. As I mentioned before, the UFO craze started in earnest in 1947 with Kenneth Arnold's sighting of what seemed like a fleet of saucer craft floating through the air near Mount Rainier in Washington. There's more about that in a previous episode, Signs, Grudges, and Blue Books, Early Ufology. As more and more UFOs were reported, some researchers started noticing that these craft are often seen around mountains, especially dormant and extinct volcanoes. Could they be coming from inside the Earth rather than off of it, using lava tubes as transit tunnels? Some noticed there seemed to be an awful lot of UFO sightings along the Cascade Mountain Range that runs from southern British Columbia in Canada down to northern California, and particularly Mount Rainier in Washington, Mount Hood in Oregon, and Mount Shasta in California. If they were coming from inside a hollow earth, then that would explain how the darn things can disappear so quickly. But the marriage in UFOs and the hollow earth is consummated in 1964 with the book The Hollow Earth written by esotericist and alternative medicine guy Walter Siegmeister under the name Raymond W. Bernard. This book is pretty much the modern spark that lit the fire of speculation around this subject. Bernard slash Siegmeister says the Earth's crust is 800 miles thick, that Admiral Byrd's polar expedition found an entrance to the underground world and traveled 4,000 miles inside of it, that inside the planet lives a race of super beings, who are the Atlanteans of old, who build and use UFOs, and that the governments of the world know all about this and cover it up. He has all sorts of proofs for his wild claims, including that old standby of observing phenomena, speculating about the causes with little or no scientific knowledge, and then claiming that these unfounded speculations are facts, like that tropical seeds have been found inside icebergs, why they must come from the warm jungle-like interior world, that some birds and other animals migrate north instead of south because it's warmer there, that the poles are actually warmer than other parts of the planet, and that if you go above the 70-degree latitude line, the winds actually get warmer. Now, this book came out right before the whole ancient astronaut theory thing started to take off, and there was this big resurgence of postmodern esoterica, often taking the form of a hybrid of old tales and legends, UFOs, superior beings, aliens or transdimensional or whatever, and religious ideas from a number of traditions. Eventually, this would coalesce around things that the Theosophists and Blavatsky came up with in the 19th century, and New Age philosophy would be born. 
Bernard himself would go on to write books about Jesus and the Essenes, Kundalini practices, Valiant Thor, a supposed alien spaceship commander who hung out at the UN in the 60s, Count St. Germain, and more books about the almost magical beings who live underneath our feet. Note that his internal dwellers are nice, not evil. In later years, many other writers of the same genre and caliber, like Gray Barker, would jump in on the bandwagon, sometimes with some truly outlandish tales, like Peter Colissimo, one of the originators of pseudo-archaeology, who wrote in 1974 about a robot that had been seen scurrying away into a tunnel underneath a Mongolian monastery. That same year, 74, an Irish but also Dutch noble who was really into UFOs wrote a book, William Francis Brinsley Le Pour Trench, 8th Earl of Clancarty, 7th Marquis of Hoysden, had been an editor of the magazine Flying Saucer Review and a founder of the International Unidentified Object Observer Corps as well as Contact International. He was also VP of the British UFO Research Association and used his position in the House of Lords to start a UFO study group there. His 1974 book, Secret of the Ages, UFOs from Inside the Earth, also put out a UFOs come from inside a hollow earth theory. The beings who build and operate them live in tunnels created by the Atlanteans, but are not themselves Atlanteans. Also, this advanced civilization has perfected ESP abilities. He also did not believe there was an ice cap over the North Pole, but instead there was a warm sea that slowly dripped into the interior of the Earth, which is why the inside of the planet is so warm. He also noted that icebergs are made of fresh water, which proves that there must be rivers flowing underground. He also thought the moon is hollow and all other planets are hollow, and so are comets. Trench will go on to write other books about how Adam and Eve actually lived on Mars, as did Noah and all the other Old Testament characters, all those Old Testament characters actually lived in the Martian desert, not the Judean desert, and they moved to Earth when the polar ice caps melted, causing a flood. He also claimed that he could directly trace his ancestral lineage back to the year 63,000 BCE, which is when the Martian biblical aliens first came to our world. Oh, bless him. Facts, Facts cut, a, cut hole a hole in us. As a line from the excellent 1980 talking head song, Cross-Eyed and Painless. Of course, we know the Earth is not hollow, and we've known this for quite some time. Funded by Britain's Royal Society, French scientist Pierre Bourgeur and French explorer Charles-Marie de la Condamine went on an expedition to Ecuador in 1735 to conduct an experiment, arriving three years later because, you know, ships were slow back then. They conducted what's called a vertical deflection experiment, which showed how the mass of the 13,510-foot-high Chimborazo volcano would pull an object away from a true vertical at different altitudes. This volcano was chosen because it is, in fact, the furthest point away from the center of the Earth and sits only one degree of latitude off the equator. The equator bulges out a little bit. The Earth isn't a perfect sphere. And while Chimborazo is lower than Mount Everest when measuring from above sea level, if you're measuring from the center of the Earth, it's actually the furthest point away. Also, it was easier to get to the top of this mountain than Mount Everest, which wouldn't be summited by a white guy until 1924. During their experiment, they noticed a deflection of 8 degrees due to the mass of the volcano. From this, they could calculate that the Earth cannot, in fact, be hollow. It's very complicated, but their findings have been peer-reviewed many times and duplicated many more times. 
So you would think that would put the issue to bed, but as we have seen, it didn't. True believers in all sorts of things have been routinely ignoring the evidence of science for hundreds of years. Well, why don't we just look, some say. Well, the deepest hole we humans have ever drilled, the Kola Superdeep Borehole in Murmansk, Russia, right near the Norwegian border, only goes down about 2.5 miles vertical. It's seven and a half miles long, but it's at an angle. But we have other ways of figuring out what's down there as well. For example, seismic waves move in a way that is absolutely consistent with moving through a semi-solid and not moving through a hollowed out shell. Over the years, we have learned some things with 99.999% certainty. Remember, good science is never 100%. We know that the Earth has a diameter of 12,742 kilometers, which is 7,917.5 miles. We know that the Earth's crust varies in thickness, ranging from 5 to 70 kilometers thick. That's 3.1 to 43.5 miles. The thinner bits are under the ocean. And just a few years ago, they found a bit of the Atlantic Ocean floor that's thought to be as thin as one mile thick. Overall, the crust only accounts for 1% of total Earth volume. At the base of the crust, temperatures reach around 1,000 degrees Celsius, more than 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit, because as you go deeper, things head up. The next layer is the mantle, which makes up 84% of total volume. This is a massive zone of semi-liquid rock about 2,900 kilometers thick or 1,800 miles. It's actually divided up into three sub-layers, each of differing levels of plasticity. Down at the bottom, where the mantle meets the next layer, temperatures get up to 3,500 degrees Celsius, more than 6,300 Fahrenheit. Then we get to the outer core a layer of molten nickel and iron that spins as the Earth rotates. This creates the planet's electromagnetic field, which protects us from the solar wind and other nasty space radiation, making life possible on the surface. The outer core is 2,200 kilometers thick, or 1,367 miles, and it is hot, darned hot, with temperatures getting as high as 6,100 degrees Celsius, over 11,000 Fahrenheit. That is hotter than the surface of the sun, which is around 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit or 5,600 Celsius. And then finally, there's the inner core. The pressure from so much planet pressing down causes the liquid nickel and iron in the outer core to become pressed back into a solid, a ball ranging from 1,230 to 1,530 kilometers across or 764 to 950 miles across. Pretty small, all things considered. Deep inside that big metal ball at its center, temperatures can reach 5,500 degrees Celsius just under 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Again, right around the same as the surface of the sun. So nothing we can conceive of could possibly live down there. Certainly not at those temperatures and pressures. Maybe something could if it was living in tunnels inside the crust. But as I said, number one, that's only 1% of the total volume of the planet. And even just a mile down, it gets uncomfortably hot, at least for us surface dwellers. So we know the earth is not hollow. But despite knowing all this, people still write books about the hollow earth and make videos and bore the pants off family members at holidays with their kooky notions. A lot of it is mixed up with spiritualism, aliens, alternate dimensions, and so forth. And of course, the powers that be are covering it up for whatever reason. This is the governments of all of the world, 
all of the world since they all have to know about it, right? And even though most countries change leaders every few years, no one has yet let the cat out of the bag. Or maybe it's the Catholic Church or the Illuminati or you name it. There's a Mormon guy named Rodney Clough who wrote a book called World Top Secret, Our Earth is Hollow! Exclamation point which also includes a paper of his about anti-gravity, which has a whole bunch of Bible references and spurious connections. It is pretty thorough, though, pulling in many of the people we've talked about here today, as well as other people I cannot be bothered to read. His badly designed website is chock full of links to all sorts of things and is very much worth playing around on for a while if you have the time and the inclination. Link in the episode notes. One of his links is to a 2010 video called Hollow Earth Theory 3D HD Version, which is on the YouTube page for a company that makes complicated light projectors. You should see it for yourself, complete with its misspellings, idiosyncratic grammar, and electronic dance music soundtrack in the dedicated playlist for this episode on our own YouTube channel. But it bears mentioning there's an idea put forth there which is really quite amazing. Because, you see, the Earth exists in two different dimensions at once, which vibrate at different frequencies. So we normally live in three spatial dimensions and one temporal one, so the inside of the Earth can be considered a fifth dimension. The video then devolves into a bunch of technical-looking gibberish, but honestly, there are worse ways to spend six minutes and 12 seconds, especially if you're pretty high. Growing, Growing pain. The Expanding, the expanding Earth, Earth theory. theory. Now, for the time being, we're ignoring the whole flat Earth theory, since that deserves its own full episode. There is another Earth theory that we're going to take a quick look at. The Expanding Earth Theory. This is the idea that the Earth is actually growing larger all the time. The idea came about in 1889 from an Italian geologist and violinist, Roberto Mantovani though he did build on some earlier musings from other people, including some thoughts Darwin had back in 1835. The theory was an attempt to explain continental drift, which was pretty much known by then to be a real thing. It was noticed that if you look at a pretty accurate map of the world, the east coast of South America fits right into the west coast of Africa perfectly, and I mean perfectly, like a jigsaw puzzle. How can that be? His idea was all land on Earth had originally been one huge continent, but then volcanoes made things hot, which caused the Earth to expand because we know that hot things expand. And then the land ripped apart, and then the spaces between these rip zones filled up with water to become the oceans. Of course, there are problems with this idea. If the Earth had, in fact, been smaller once, then the gravity on the surface would have been much more than it is now, and living things would have evolved differently. Plus, such high gravity would have affected the Earth's orbit around the Sun. Also, other planets don't seem to be expanding, so why is it just the Earth that does this? Well, what about the magma that comes out during volcanic eruptions? Ha-ha! Irish physicist John Jolie said maybe the Earth expands, but also contracts sometimes, and this causes interior cracks and pressures from friction, which liquefies rock, and that is magma. Some others took the expanding Earth ball and ran with it, speculating maybe Earth is in the midst of becoming a gas giant like the outer planets. Or maybe the Earth is expanding because the universe is expanding, and so therefore everything is expanding. 
These are some ideas to try and explain continental drift, all before German geophysicist Alfred Wegener figured out in 1912 how it all works with the science that is now known as plate tectonics. We are now 99.99999% sure that the continents are actually sitting atop large plates of crust material that float along on the topmost bits of the mantle, which are the most liquid parts. The theory, which explains a lot more than just the jigsaw puzzle shapes of the continents, has been pretty much conclusively proven. But back in the day, there were plenty who were actively hostile towards it. In fact, plate tectonics did not really become accepted as essentially a fact until the late 1960s. How fast these plates are moving varies, but it is pretty slow. For example, the North American plate and the Eurasian plate are moving apart by about two and a half centimeters, that's one inch, per year. And yet, there are still some people who just don't buy plate tectonics. There used to be a group called the Growing Earth Consortium, but if you go onto their web domain, it now redirects to JB Battery, which is a Chinese lithium battery manufacturer. So I guess they just kind of pooped out. One true believer is American comic book artist Neil Adams, who seems like a pretty cool guy, except that he has this one idea, that the Earth is in fact expanding, and he shares this idea with a fellow comic book artist named Michael Netzer. The mechanism for this is something called pair production. This is when a subatomic boson splits into smaller subatomic particles and also their antiparticles. He's actually spent a lot of time and effort promoting this idea, including making a series of videos on his YouTube channel with titles like Conspiracy, the Earth is Growing, and Conspiracy, the Moon is Growing, and Conspiracy, Mars is Growing, and so on for Europa and the mountains of the Earth and much more. He also has some videos about Bigfoot. He actually used his expanding Earth idea for his 2012 Batman series for DC Comics, Batman Odyssey, where the Earth has indeed been expanding for so long that it has managed to create, wait for it, a, a hollow, hollow Earth, Earth. <laughs> where dinosaurs live and there are Neanderthal versions of key DC characters. And that is a nice way to bring things back full circle, if you will. It's pretty much a known thing that the Earth is not hollow, and yet some people will continue to push it either because they truly believe it, or because they are cranks, or because they are trolls, or they want to cash in on the lucrative conspiratosphere. And likely well into the 21st century, there will be plenty more people making this claim as well. But of course, no matter how much gibberish and how much scientific-sounding gobbledygook they throw at us, I think we all know that their claims ring hollow. <laughs> see, see what I did there? I am so funny. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.